The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Years later, Cecilia's daughter Lyle told a great-granddaughter of an occasion when Albin was berating Cecilia. Lyle, then only a child, grabbed a cast-iron pot and warned her stepfather, quote, Motherfucker, if you don't leave my mother alone, I will kill you. End quote. Albin stopped the beating. From the Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of the Jealous Husband by Gary Sisnecki. Welcome back, Murder Bookies, to Second Cast, Episode 32, Cecilia's Curse, of my trilogy on the Potato Masher murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband, by Gary Sisnecki. I am your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area and love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years of experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month, I will discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. I like to tell the story from the author's point of view, so it's never a boring timeline. In this third episode of the series, Second Cast, where I delve into the threads not pulled, explore the paths not taken, add updates, or in this case, the follow-up stories of what happened after the trial. Oh my God, it is a wild ride. If you haven't listened to part one or part two, episodes 30 and 31, you really should. There's a, a lot of spoilers. So where do we leave off? Albin, a charmer, as you heard in the opening description from Lyle, Cecilia's daughter, had been convicted of murdering Cecilia Henderson Hornberg Ludwig and was sentenced to 2 to 14 years. He is spared the death penalty, although it was on the table given how Cecilia was killed, just horrifically burned to death. Alvin Ludwig was formally received at the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City on May 13, 1907, and assigned prisoner number 3701. His mugshot from entry into the prison shows a handsome man with close-cropped hair, gray piercing eyes, and a light beard as if he hadn't shaved for a few days. He'd fit right in today. His occupation was listed as carpenter plumber. His body described as medium heavy. Among other prisoner paperwork, he was asked to tell the story of his crime, which he did. It's consistent with what he said at the trial, although he added more details about Cecilia's alleged infidelities. Warden James D. Reed briefed Albin on prison life. Clothing, a stark check or plaid suit, privileges, writing one letter a month or one visit a month, and he could borrow books from the library. After three months of uninterrupted good conduct, Alvin would be promoted from his current second grade status to first grade. His uniform would shift to a cadet blue with brass buttons and his number stenciled on it. 
Letter writing in prisons doubled at that point. At six months of continuous good conduct, the board can then consider parole. Yeah, after six months of a two to 14 year sentence for murder. Hmm. Violations of any rule demoted an inmate back to second grade, and if that continued, down to third grade, wearing the old stereotypical prison stripes. Thus, each man determined for himself how it would go for him in prison. From what Gary researched, he found only one conduct report with Albin Ludwig's name on it from August 9, 1915, and the offense was, quote, laughing and talking in chapel when the lines were coming in, end quote. Albin was reprimanded, not really a severe punishment for that kind of infraction. Between 1913 and 1923, Albin was admitted to the prison hospital seven times. Was any of this connected to the injuries he'd inflicted on himself when he killed Cecilia? We don't know. Now, if you recall Albin's brother, Gustav Ludwig, he hired the defense attorneys days before Albin appeared in court, two months after Cecilia's murder. Brothers Gustav and Albin had been estranged over some money issues dating back a few years. Given all of this, surprisingly, Gustav did not stamp on Albin's appeal. A 99-page document, Albin R. Ludwig Appellant versus the State of Indiana, was filed on December 31, 1907, with the Indiana Supreme Court, which included a full discussion of the issues, how they were decided, the judgment, errors to be considered for reversal, a history of the alleged crime theories by the parties, seven affidavits, 34 pages of recitals of evidence, and this was condensed. And there were arguments for appeal, plus an index. The evidence remained wholly circumstantial. Would Albin remain in jail for this murder? Would Cecilia and her family keep the justice won at Albin's conviction? Well, let's find out. The appeal hinged on the following sequence of events. Albin searching for the insurance policy in the closet, Cecilia arriving, them arguing, her hitting him with the potato masher, him dropping or knocking the oil lamp, catching her by the throat, pushing her up against the hook, causing that scalp wound, choking her to collapse, sinking down to her death. Him having no thoughts of intentionally killing her at all. Horrified by what happened, he grabbed a razor, cut himself, and was rendered unconscious. The blood on the door casings and the stair rail being caused by the men from the neighborhood, the Good Samaritans, not Albin fetching kerosene to burn Cecilia, but the men who picked up the direly injured Albin, passed him through the window, and subsequently re-entered the home seeking to help more. Or maybe they were just being nosy. Albin did not start nor attempt to start any fire, not in the closet, not in the cellar, which may have been inferred from the sighting of the smoldering paper and ash in the basement. He was guilty of nothing of any higher degree than simple manslaughter, and that was the defense position. Among the 15 factors presented in the defense appeal, these are some of the more important points. I didn't cover all 15. I will spare you from that. <laughs> Pieces of lamp were found in the debris in the closet by Gustav. The hook that doctors confirmed would make a jagged scalp wound, such as found on Cecilia's head, 
not a potato masher as the prosecution presented, and Cecilia's weak heart contributed to her death. The defense had a very rough time trying to get that information on Cecilia's heart condition on the record during the trial. Had it mattered to the jury? Was this an error so grave it could justify a new trial? One of the seven affidavits was from D.D. Rathbun, a telegraph operator who claimed to be the first person at the house fire who, quote, stumbled upon and saw the body of a man on the floor near the windows. His hands had been covered with blood while handling Alvin's body, end quote. After Alvin had been rescued from the scene, he and at least one other man who had assisted went downstairs. Rathbun swore, quote, I have no distinct recollection of putting my bloody hands or hands on the rail, but I have no doubt that I did, end quote. So that would be a new explanation for the mysterious bloody handprints that the prosecution claimed the self-injured bloody Alvin made going downstairs to get kerosene or gasoline to use as fuel to burn Cecilia, which is what the defense is now suggesting. Also, Rathbun certified that he'd noticed some stuff on the dresser in the front room beginning to burn. He hastily pushed it on the floor or swept up what was ever on the dresser and threw it out the window. Had this managed to get blown into the cellar where a portion of it was seen by neighbor Robert Schlesenberg, who testified about this at trial. Another rescuer who had not testified at trial was Bert W. Shaw, the first guy who went up the ladder to help out on that terrible day, and the guy no one recognized or knew his name at the time. Later, Shaw went into the cellar twice searching for Cecilia and saw no fire, no smoke either time. Put together, explaining the bloody handprints away, plus the affidavits by Rathbone and Shaw, this is new evidence fitting Alvin's version of the events that transpired. But was it enough? Would it result in a different verdict? The Indiana Supreme Court decided that it was not. Chief Justice John H. Gillette wrote, acknowledging the new evidence explaining the bloodstains, but wrote, quote, The case against the appellant would have been quite as strong with the existence of such bloodstains explained. The questions remained whether, in the circumstances of new evidence being introduced, it could reasonably be expected that the jury might acquit him or find him guilty of manslaughter. The deceased came to her death as a result of a struggle in the closet. The conclusion of the jury, that the appellant was guilty of murder in the second degree, is fully supported. End quote. Whether the fire was or wasn't started in the cellar was trifling in the eyes of Judge Gillette. In the eyes of the court and prosecution, Albin Ludwig knocked his wife unconscious with a potato masher, dragged her into the closet, doused her with gasoline, set her on fire, closed the door, and blocked it with furniture. I recall the testimony of Fireman Hose, who testified under oath at the trial that he'd removed a rocking chair from in front of the closet where it blocked that closed door. I remember that well. Alvin Ludwig got off easy because it should have been premeditated first-degree murder. He should have hanged. Eight years later, November 1915, Alvin petitioned the parole board for parole. Cecilia's daughter, Lyle, now age 21, may have testified against Alvin's release. Quote, I believe my mom told me 
that Lyle always went to his parole hearings to try to keep him in prison, end quote, a great-granddaughter told Gary Sisnecki in 2017. In 1919, the prosecuting attorney of the 60th Judicial Circuit was Samuel P. Schwartz, who addressed the latest parole application by Alvin that was before the State Board of Pardons. Since this crime was the most brutal one, and certain people who remember the case and are familiar with the circumstances have come to this office for learning what may be done to prevent Ludwig's parole, end quote. Parole was not granted. Now, 16 years later, January 17, 1923, Indiana Governor Warren T. McKay commuted Ludwig's sentence from life to 16 years, so he was now eligible for parole that May. Why Governor McCray took this action, we don't know, but it seems likely that people who supported the parole pushed, ratcheting up their energies to get him out. Executive Order 1016 states that upon his conviction, Alvin had no previous criminal history and he maintained a clear record while in prison. After, quote, a careful investigation and examination of all the facts, the State Board of Pardons recommended that Ludwig's sentence be commuted, end quote. Ludwig was released this time. All in all, it wasn't actually completely unusual. A 16-plus years was considered a life sentence in the early 20th century. Life in the federal system was officially defined as 15 years, wrote political scientist Marie Gottschall, an expert on mass incarceration. Another Indiana wife killer was sentenced to life in 1907, the same year as Albin, and he was paroled after 11 years. Two others served 15 years, and they had first-degree murder convictions. June 1, 1923, Alvin Ludwig was paroled, paperwork, 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 and on June 8th, Alvin left the prison. There were seven rules he had to follow now once paroled. Alvin couldn't change employers without written permission from the warden. He had to report his income and monthly expenses. He had to abstain from liquor and, quote, avoid evil associations and improper places of amusement and recreation, end quote. I like that one. A really good suggestion, certainly. He could not carry firearms. And he, quote, had to respect and obey the laws cheerfully, end quote, as he conducts himself as a good citizen. Alvin got a job from George E. Whiteman, who, believe it or not, was formerly employed by the Elkhart Police Department, climbing the ladder from patrolman to superintendent. Whiteman had come to Alvin's rescue before, when as a police sergeant, this was a couple years before the murder, Whiteman pulled Ludwig off Cecilia when he had been choking her on the floor in 1903 at a dance. Of course, Alvin denied the incident ever occurred, and the newly minted free citizen was discharged from parole May 31, 1924, a year after he left prison. Cecilia's granddaughter, Jessie, told Gary Sosnecki in a 2017 interview that she believed Whiteman had gotten Alvin a job as a jewel tea man, a door-to-source salesman of teas, coffee, and house goods. Now remember, this is very, very common sight back in America in the 1920s. Welcome with regularity. Jesse also told Gary, quote, her mom was just petrified of him, end quote. 
Well, can you imagine a convicted murderer walking up to your door, coming inside, hanging out with you while looking at selections of tea, Jasmine, Earl Grey, while the husband's at work, you're alone with Albin Ludwig, a wife talking to another man without her husband home, the very thing that triggered him about Cecilia. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Hello, and welcome to the jury room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe. And thanks for listening. Well, by 1928, Alvin Ludwig may have gone back into the restaurant business right near the old Monument Saloon that he'd once run. In Elkhart, he was listed as operating a lunchroom and living in an apartment above it. By 1932, the restaurant was called the Old Inn Restaurant. 17-year-old Albin went back to factory work by 1940, working at the PlaySafe company as a metal worker. During World War II, production shift from playground equipment to U.S. Navy parks. And Albin moved from living above the old inn into the home of a 29-year-old unmarried woman who needed to take in a lodger for extra money. Now, I know he hasn't done anything since his release, but do you think that she knew about his history? Did she realize she had a wife killer in the next room? Hmm. While Gary Sosnecki found no evidence that Alvin remarried, stepdaughter Lyle believed that he had, as her great-granddaughter explained. Quote, Lyle boldly told the new wife what kind of man he was. End quote. Oh, there had been a fly on the wall in that conversation. At age 79, Alvin filed a claim for Social Security, and in 1953, he was a retiree living quietly by himself at 110 and a half East Franklin, back in the city where he was born, Elkhart. He died June 18, 1954, according to a single source that noted it at Elkhart Funeral Home. No death notice was published in the local papers. Gustav Ludwig is buried with his parents and family members at Grace Lawn Cemetery, but Albin is in an unmarked grave in Rice Cemetery. It appears that his family was ashamed of Alvin, had disconnected from him, and did not want to be associated with him, not even in death. He had outlived Cecilia by 48 years. Well, let's turn to Cecilia Henderson Hornberg Ludwig, wife, mother, homemaker, but she was different from many of the women of their era with their traditional wives and husbands, and some abusive like Charlie Hornberg and Alvin Ludwig. Married, divorced, married again, Cecilia was not inhibited, not afraid to speak back to her husband, cursing as she expressed herself. She was referred to as a, quote, modern woman, end quote, a term Gary takes from an article written in the West Gypsum Gazette of Australia, then London's Daily Mail, and published in the South Bend Daily Times in Mishawaka, ironically, on September 25th, 1906. And although it describes Cecilia to a T, she likely never read this article 
being murdered literally that afternoon. Both Cecilia's husband used violence against her to control her, which happens all too commonly in this era and still does today, and it was an accepted part of married life for decades. It is not okay. If you are struggling, abused, in danger, there are resources posted on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Please, please, get help safely. Speak to the authorities, to a friend, clergy. Please, trust your gut murder bookies. Get help if you need it. It is available. A 1982 report on battered women by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights traced wife beating in the U.S. to British common law, which condoned it as a punishment for misbehavior. In 1864, a North Carolina court in the case of a man who choked his wife ruled that this was acceptable use of force. Finally, in an 1871 Alabama court ruling, the legal right of a man to beat his wife was rescinded as a husband and wife, quote, stand upon the same footing before the law, end quote. However, there was a caveat, quote, if no permanent injury has been inflicted, nor malice, cruelty, nor dangerous violence shown by the husband, it is better to draw the curtains, shut out the public gaze, and leave the parties to forget and forgive, end quote. So as long as whatever went on behind closed doors and stayed there, whatever, no, that's unacceptable. But at least it was something and was starting to move in the right direction. But not for Cecilia. She rejected being anyone's punching bag, divorcing her first husband for cruel and inhumane treatment. It seems to be, for whatever complicated reasons, Cecilia was packing to leave Alvin, and had she lived a few more hours, she would have likely had her trunk on the livery that Jean, her sister, had gone to fetch, and she would have been gone to safety, and a divorce would have begun. But she never made it out of that closet. A 1908 analysis on why divorces occurred in that era was written by William S. Barber for the Century Club of Indianapolis and the Marion County Bar Association and cites several conclusions. One really summed up what had occurred in the Ludwig marriage. Quote, if neither the husband nor wife has reached the point for applying for divorce and laying bare the sores that every human being instinctively seeks to keep covered, though they continue to live together, they get farther apart in spirit and interests until the husband seeks in the society of some other woman or the wife of some other man the companionship and sympathy which they have failed to find in each other. Then, a degree of separation is asked on the grounds of infidelity. End quote. So, why did Alvin kill Cecilia? Was it a, if I can't have you, no one can type of thinking? Yeah, I think it most likely was, though I haven't got a lot of psychological background to use in analyzing Alvin. Dr. Joni E. Johnson has written an article on the obsessive ex who cannot let go and move on. Dr. Johnson describes two types that fall under this potentially lethal umbrella. The first, who has no history of violence against his spouse. 20% of these homicides fall into this category, with the murder being the first act of physical violence. 
This personality profile describes the immature individual, self-centered, who constantly demands attention and affection and craves reassurance. The potential victim partner is blackmailed, usually through tears, that her husband will commit suicide, harm himself, building up the guilt. This is all done to control the partner in the relationship. When the relationship shatters and these tactics are no longer working, violence becomes the only option. Now, since we know Albin did have a history of violence against Cecilia, he isn't this type, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Now, type two, according to Dr. Johnson, is the violent spouse with a history of impulsivity and substance abuse. Albin was known to allegedly drink, teasing back to the 1908 media that condemned Albin as a murderer, but only alleged him to be a drinker. Now, I don't believe Albin had a robust criminal history that can be a factor, but Albin did have a track record of failed businesses, inconsistent work, and a spotty payment history. Like type number two, Albin was controlling in this relationship, using physical violence to gain control and keep his wife in line when Cecilia acted against his wants and beliefs. It made him feel dominant and more powerful and fed his belief that he is right. Cecilia belonged to Albin, and he had the right to tell her what to do, the right to tell her where to go, the right to know what she'd done and who she'd been with. We get this over and over and over in the trial transcript. In the first decade of the 20th century, this wasn't all that unusual. Women did answer to their husbands as a norm. Women's liberation is still 60 years away. Although, as I said, there was talk of the modern woman who was stronger and more resilient even in 1906. Lethal violence becomes possible as an extension of the dysfunctional relationship. In this case, belief Cecilia was trampling all over with her infidelity and challenges to Albin's power. I am not blaming Cecilia, but I am speaking honestly about the circumstances in this marriage. From the beginning, I believe Cecilia thought she could control Albin, which is probably why she married a man in smaller stature than she was. Recall she's just under six foot. Albin is five foot eight. Cecilia had been cruelly abused in her first marriage and divorced him for it. She knew her rights in this regard. She could stand up to Albin armed with this knowledge, and Cecilia voiced her objections and she resisted him. Only when Cecilia had had enough of the tension, arguments, his suspicion, stalking, and badgering did she announce that she was leaving and began to act on this. And that is when Albin ended her life. Albin would lose face if Cecilia left him. He'd be embarrassed before all of Mishawaka, shamed. He'd lost control of his wife. Hence, he tells his friend, Fred Metzler, that he is going to kill himself. He could not live with her leaving him. It was an affront. It was too much to bear. So he killed her when his rage erupted in that closet. Dr. Johnson sums it up perfectly. Quote, Stalking and other forms of unwanted pursuit may be used in an attempt to maintain or reestablish an intimate relationship. Taken to the extreme, the obsessive ex may explode in a murderous rage out of the mistaken impression that the very essence of who they are will be psychologically destroyed if they don't respond to the situation. End quote. We certainly see this in the sequence of events with Alvin and Cecilia 
him following her the night before he killed her, trying to convince Cecilia to stay rather than to pack the day of her death, and the eruption of rage as he bashed her with the potato masher, sets her on fire, and tries to commit suicide himself. They would die together, only Alvin lived. I read another study called Wife Murder in Chicago, 1910 to 1930, by Bowman and Altman. So it's fairly relevant to Mishawaka in 1906. Of the wives killed, 68% were killed with a gun, 16% with a knife, and 17 with other. What's other? I asked myself. Well, this included scalding, strangling, throwing out the window, setting a fire, striking with an axe, hammer, baseball bat, or potato masher, and poison. Set a fire, hit with a potato masher, poison. These are all possibilities in this particular case. Alvin fits this profile perfectly. Cecilia is not to be blamed for his ruthless act of violence against the woman he claimed to love, which I just reject. Spare me, Alvin. You don't hurt people you love. Neither of these two people were saints, but nothing justifies the barbarity of September 25, 1906. Nothing. Cecilia's murder was particularly horrific, and thankfully, there were few others that rose to this level of gruesomeness. Still, there were 66 wife-killing homicides in Indiana that year. William and Lyle were not the only children who grew without their mother. Though raised apart, they did see each other occasionally and were in contact until William's death in 1969. Lyle Ellen lived until she was just two months short of her 102nd birthday. Life went on after Cecilia's death for Sister Jean and her children Lucy and Charlie Ellsworth. Fun fact, Alvin complained about Jean's absence from the trial, calling her a modern woman. So I guess Alvin had time to read the article while convalescing in the hospital, you think? 111 years after the trial, Gary got to speak with Sister Jean's grandson, Chuck Ellsworth, who shed some light on what his father, Charlie, had said about the summer of 1906. Jean's husband, Ori Horace Ellsworth, was a mining engineer in high demand in the gold fields of California at that time. According to Chuck, Ori was a stable guy, hardworking, and kept his eye on the ball. Jean did not. She flitted in and out of railroad flats where they lived at will. Jean showed up in Mishawakwa in July 1906, moving in with Cecilia and Alvin, and she had no intention of returning to Ori, hence her relationship with Fred Young. Chuck told Gary, quote, I think when things started to look flat and railroad flat, she just took off, end quote. <laughs> Good one, Chuck. However, Ori took a job with CNC Mining Works in Virginia City, Nevada, a huge job, a huge operation, and Jean came back. Ori was with CNC through the 1920s. Ori described Jean as a runaround who wouldn't stay at home when he would stay and take care of the kids. At some point, Ori and Jean divorced, and Ori married the love of his life, Anna. Sadly, Anna would die of a stroke in Ori's arms in 1934. He always spoke lovingly of her. Jean remarried, too, to William Jones Lee, a Scottish immigrant, 
who went by the name Billy, and they all lived in California. Charlie Ellsworth, dad of Chuck, wasn't bookish like his father, Ori, and didn't seem impacted long-term by the tragedy that befell Cecilia when he was only seven years old. Charlie grew up to be a cowboy, a master with a lariat. He met Will Rogers, and he served as a World War I artilleryman. Later, he settled down as a mechanic and raised his family, marrying Floretta Pearl Boyd in 1935. Charlie was good to his mother, Jean, even though she'd abandoned the family when he was younger. He and Flo bought Jean and Billy a bungalow so they could all be near each other. Chuck remembers riding his bike to Grandma Jean's house and her good cooking. He also recalls how tall Jean was at five foot ten, like Cecilia, towering over him as a kid. When Jean's husband died a few years later, Charles and Flo moved, bringing Jean with them so they could all continue to live nearby. Both Ori and Jean passed away in 1974. Charlie died on April 20th, 1997, at the age of 97, and his sister Lucy died December 3rd, 1999, at the age of 102, like I said. While Lucy didn't witness the murders, she was the last living person who had witnessed the events that followed. Chuck heard many stories from Ori and Charlie growing up. But the first of Cecilia's murder was when Gary approached him for this book. The murder had been a taboo subject. Charlie was the patriarch of the family and the boss, so it's likely he just quashed any discussion of it, and he died silent on the subject nine decades later. Now, some updates on the Ludwig case. Gary writes in the appendix that ten years later, there was a brother's reunion in prison. Gustav Ludwig joined Albin. Gus, as he preferred to be called, immigrated to the U.S. in 1883. He was a self-employed carpenter. He also knew plumbing and had become a naturalized citizen. When he was about 50 years old, Gus lived in Elkhart in a mortgage-free home with his wife Minnie and his mother Ida. For the first 40 years of Gus's life, he had been hardworking, energetic, thrifty, hence the lack of mortgage, and he was married to Minnie for 22 years with two daughters. But he also had a history of minor transgressions, riding a bike on the sidewalk, receiving a $9 fine, assault and battery, he received a $13 fine, some kind of fist fight in saloon that was. The third arrest was for laying sewer in a yard without a license, an interesting hobby, but that was dismissed. The fourth time, Gus was sentenced to probation for trespassing. So it sounds like Gus is a man who liked to do exactly what he wanted and a pox on the consequences. So in April 1915, a Ludwig made the Eckhart Daily Review again. Gustav was the, quote, burglar caught dead to rights in local store, end quote. So approximately 9 p.m. in the evening, Gus was caught stealing in a warehouse called Bornman and Sons Hardware Store. Several dry loads of goods were found in his barn, confiscated as evidence of the theft. Gus was released on a $700 bond, which is about $19,000 or 17,000 euros in 2022. He hired the law firm of Hugh and Arnold. And in the papers, Gus was described as a kleptomaniac. During Gus's trial, it came out that he had struggled with police officers. When taken to the police station, he had given a false address and a false name, Herman Frederick. 
But this was soon recognized because Gustav Ludwig, he's been living in Elkhart for, what, 40-something, 50-something years? So why bother lying about who you are, especially when you're the brother of murderer Alvin Ludwig? I guess he just didn't think that went through. Searching his place, a tremendous amount of merchandise was uncovered. Points, oils, brushes, chisels, locks, braces, vices, stools, shovels, plumbing fixtures, and innumerable small objects, all bearing the name of Bornman and Sons. So if this was all stolen, we have this master thief here, Gustav, at work. And two days later, we have a repeat. You cannot make this up. Gus was on the front page again. Sneaky little devil. A worker at Elkhart Gas and Fuel discovered that the gas meter at Gustav's home had been looped, and the gas was heating the stove but not registering any usage for the last six years. Clever scam, Gus. Got you caught, but clever scam. So delay, 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 delay. Evident Ludwig cases are never handled promptly. By October, the burglary case was filed in Superior Court and the Elkhart Truth reports that the case would be heard in November. And by the May of next year, we're in 1918 now, nothing. So some legal technicality was holding up the trial, which would eventually become a moot point when Gustav is arrested again, late November 1917, for $40,000 worth of stolen items on his property. Maybe he is a kleptomaniac. Because this is just plain dumb, going out and stealing more stuff when you're facing trial for stealing stuff, which reeks of some kind of compulsion. A cousin of Ludwig's, Max Schumann, was also arrested. Now, this is a huge deal in 2022 money. This is about $865,000 or 765,000 euros. So this is really significant. Arrested, at first Gus insisted that he was starting a store. But he finally cracked, confessing that he was actually a fence for his cousin Max, who had been selling items as, quote, Frank Boss, Goshen, Indiana, end quote. Chicago law enforcement arrested Schumann, who was arraigned in Superior Court. Max Schumann was either 23 or 27, depending on the news account, and he worked for the American Express Company, and he was the head of the Bad Order Department. Okay, his job was to repack and redirect packages that became broken in transit. So I can kind of deduce here that some of these goods found at Gus's were broken, and Max chose not to have them repacked. And then yet another parcel of goods arrives for Frank Boss of Goshen. So Schumann is running the scam right up until his arrest. Max confessed to prosecutor Oscar J saying that was all him, he exonerated Gus Ludwig entirely. Max told Jay that he bought the articles at sales of unclaimed consignments. Both conspirators plead guilty on the morning of November 23rd, Schumann pleading guilty to grand larceny, and he's sentenced from 1 to 14 years in the state reformatory at Jeffersonville. Gus Ludwig is sentenced for the two-year-old burglary at Bornman and Sons, receiving a two- to four-year sentence in Michigan City. G. Gus's sentence is the same amount of time Alvin received for murder. Theft and murder are equivalent in sentencing, huh? I'm not real pleased about that. All right, the delay in prosecuting Gus was a technological glitch. When stolen, the Borman company had not realized the items were missing, 
So they hedged on filling out an affidavit against Ludwig because none of the evidence could actually be proven missing from the company. Well, obviously, they, they figured it out. So off to prison went 49-year-old Gustav to Michigan City on December 18, 1917, accompanied by a city fireman, pressed into service by a deputy sheriff. Gus makes no trouble on the journey. He is intending to seek a pardon after serving a minimum of two years for absolutely flawless behavior. All right, December 1919, both Albin and Gustav were permitted temporary parole to attend their mother Eva's funeral, as she had been found dead in her bed by Gustav's life nanny. Eva Ludwig was 81 years old. I have to wonder if having two sons in prison impacted her death by heart failure. We don't know, and broken hearts are known to keep beating until they don't. And now we see that Cecilia's curse is going to begin to kick in fully. The spillover from the Ludwig case doesn't end here. Prosecutor Joseph Talbot continues to make headlines, only this time he is the subject of investigation. This is about a year after the jury found Albin guilty. Late in 1908, Charles F. Haller, who is a South Bend attorney, files an affidavit asking Judge Walker Funk to appoint a committee to investigate Prosecutor Joseph Talbot, who, according to Haller, has been violating his duties as an attorney. Now, this is a serious charge, and it could result in disbarment. So Haller wants investigation into Talbot, the law and order guy, remember, who insisted laws be obeyed, closed gambling joints on Sundays, he enforced the blue laws, and I'm certain he made some folks very, very unhappy. Was Haller one of those made unhappy by Talbot enforcing the law? Hmm. On the surface, it wouldn't appear so, but one has to ask, who is this Charles F. Haller and what's his motivation? Haller is a local guy, big in the Prohibition Party, so he is a politician. Fun fact, the Prohibition Party plays an important role in the first part of the 20th century, resulting in the 18th Amendment to our Constitution, first approved by both branches of Congress and then three-fourths of the state legislatures, being ratified in 1919, creating a federal prohibition on the sale of alcohol in the United States. It will be repealed in 1933 when the 21st Amendment is ratified, and there is my little civics lesson for this series. <laughs> now, can you imagine prohibition being in effect right now with COVID? No, 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 no. All right. So being a prohibition guy, it's likely that Haller approved of Talbot enforcing the Sunday Blue Laws, closing establishments that served alcohol. But Haller has aspirations for a political career, hoping to run as the prohibition candidate for vice president in 1908, though that didn't actually work out for him. Later in 1910, Charles Haller unsuccessfully ran for state attorney general. While the accusations against Talbot were not believed to be political at the time, I kind of think they were, even though Talbot's name was not released in the newspapers yet. The Star Press of Muncie speculated, printing a link that they discovered, quote, Some time ago, proceedings were filed by the prosecutor against Holler and Fred C. Gabriel, another attorney, in connection with an application for divorce by Mrs. Perry Dixon of Buffalo, New York. Judge Funk refused to sustain the charges which Talbot made 
and a divorce was subsequently granted to Mrs. Dixon, end quote. So it didn't take a genius to figure out that the prosecutor being investigated was Joseph Talbot, who, aha, had acted against Holler in the past regarding this divorce. It doesn't seem to be something that would cause a desire for revenge, but coupled with Holler's political ambitions, it seems like a possibility. And Judge Funk apparently thought the charges against Talbot had merit because he promptly appoints a committee of six local attorneys to investigate, and the committee had until May 23rd to file a report. However, by late June 1908, the report had not been made public. Up for re-election, Joseph Talbot was having a conniption fit. He rightly believes that if the report was released too close to the election, it was a double-edged sword. If it exonerated him, it could look to the public like he'd been whitewashed, which meant he couldn't actually be helped by an outcome in his favor. So Talbot requests that, that the report and proceedings be made public and any evidence Mr. Haller had released. Let the public see, let a jury try him for any charges, and Talbot accuses Haller of false prosecution, stating that he had only conducted his official duty and had done nothing illegal. Well, Talbot was absolutely right. The accusations alone had damaged his reputation. But be careful what you ask for, because the September 15th headline rang out, quote, file serious charges against Joseph Talbot, huge capital letters, in the Laporte Weekly Herald, and attorney in trouble in the Star Press. The specifics of which Haller accused Talbot were that Joseph and his brother John Talbot concealed escaping convicts from a Michigan prison, that he employed John Talbot to appear in court as a deputy prosecuting attorney when John had been disbarred, which is legal at the time, by the way, and that while disbarment charges were pending against Joseph Talbot's predecessor, George A. Kurtz, Talbot employed Kurtz as a deputy prosecuting attorney for a year anyway. Talbot was accused of taking $25 a month not to prosecute a brothel madam. And in another case, Talbot and others were accused of conspiring to protect the woman who ran a disorderly house where gambling and liquor were sold illegally. So now remember, this is the law and order guy who was elected and immediately began enforcing the laws. They contend that immediately Talbot began accepting bribes and using favoritism. So I guess anyone can be corrupt but I'd have to see the evidence. Show me the evidence. There either was or was not evidence to support accusations. It's that simple, really. Talbot believed he'd be vindicated and re-elected, so he really pushed to have this all settled before Election Day, November 3rd. And ironically, his attorney was Samuel L. Parker, Albin Ludwig's attorney. <laughs> Gone full cycle. October 12th, Special Judge Harry B. Tuthill ordered the trial to be held in November after the election. Not good news for Joseph Talbot. Another charge was also added, that of jury tampering for this trial. So you might have guessed that Talbot is going to lose his election bid, 8,577 votes to 8,166, a difference of only 411 votes. So with scandalous accusations, a 411-vote margin of victory, that's close 
for a damaged, scandal-ridden candidate. Election over, the prosecution requested a change of venue. Hey, why not if you have a guy who just got 8,100 votes with charges pending of corruption? So maybe you need to move to a less supportive area. Very strategic move, prosecution. The request took the judge in defense by surprise, since it means there'll be a new judge, new jurors, and the whole thing. And the new venue was granted. It was moved to Superior Court in Elkhart. And that's when things got more muddled. The charge that Talbot had helped escaped convicts stay at large required an escaped convict, now recaptured, to testify, a guy by the name of Yock Allison. However, Yock refused to testify or make a deposition because he might actually incriminate himself in the crime of jailbreaking, which he was not prosecuted for after his recapture and return to prison. If Yock Allison out and out admits he'd escaped from jail, he could get three more years on top of his sentence. Hey, I'd refuse too. And Yock has the right to not self-incriminate. That is part of our Constitution. They should have known better than to pursue this, but they did anyway. So the issue of Jock testifying or not testifying remains on the table and is debated for a while. Other problems would arise during the trial, such as testimony versus attorney-client privilege and the discretion a prosecutor has during an investigation. As Special Judge Anthony Deal of Goshen ruled, less and less of the evidence became admissible. More difficulties arose, like John Talbot, the brother, did not show up to testify, just blowing off his subpoena. A bench warrant for his arrest was issued, but ultimately, John Talbot could not be forced to leave the county where he resided to testify in another, and Judge Deal agreed. I'm not sure if this is the thing today. I didn't get a chance to look into that. Right. However, John Talbot finally agreed to make a deposition. For closing arguments, Talbot's defense team spoke for three hours. The next day, six other attorneys spoke on Talbot's behalf, again. Then three attorneys spoke for the prosecution. Two of Talbot's attorneys responded to the prosecution's remarks, so back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it was all very amusing to the public. If any juror was uncertain at that point, the judge clarified the situation, and he out and out instructed the jury to find for the defendant. Just find for the defendant. I'm the judge. I know what's going on. So on February 17, 1909, the jury declared Talbot not guilty. One of the wackiest trials I have followed in a while, murder bookies. Talbot had been found not guilty on points of law. And if he'd done these things or not done these things, it really wasn't even determined by the trial, and it didn't matter in this topsy-turvy world. Well, that was that, right? Moving along, right? Joseph Talbot, no longer a prosecutor, returns to his law practice for four whole days. March 1st, 1909, his brother and disbarred law partner, John Talbot, was shot four times by ex-lover Leona Mason. More Talbot scandal flung out on the public streets. John and Leona's affair began when she hired him as her divorce attorney, her husband being Edward Mason, a wealthy real estate broker. And this fuels the scandal more. Leona shot John again 
on June 21st, running through the streets of South Bend. Oh, Leona must have been annoyed because this woman scorned thing. I mean, wow. So John wasn't actually injured too badly in the shootings, thank God. But the married husband and father's reputation was absolutely ground into the dust. Mrs. Mason was arraigned for trial for the attempted murder of John Talbot when John refused to testify against her. So I can imagine that these were really fat years for the newspaper in these towns. I mean, the feast is on. That summer of 1909, Mrs. Mason's trial neared, because this just goes on and on as the latest, quote, Talbot sensation, which was how the press referred to all of this, which include tenacious public relations campaigns by both Leona and John Talbot. John Talbot attempts to bolster his reputation using his position as founder and supreme president of the Order of the Owls, a secret, or not so secret, fraternal order. Okay, give it a rest, man. Just, you know, just stay home. Really, read a book. I'm also sure that Mrs. Talbot is at home and not very happy about the adulterous fair and publicity either. So the quote, who is John Talbot pamphlets appear all over town with photos and descriptions of this upstanding, prominent banker, lawyer, and businessman, complete with character references. A week later, another pamphlet appears titled, Who is John Talbot? Again, but this time, it's Mrs. Mason's version. Ah, oh, yeah, she's going to have her very public say here, with caricatures of the owl's emblem squawking, Hoo! and sensational charges were made, including that John Talbot was, in fact, insane. September brought Leona Mason's eight-day trial, defense attorney Charles A. Davey attacking John Talbot's character, calling him a black villain, the, quote, lowest of individuals God ever let live, end quote. The jury found Mrs. Mason not guilty after deliberating between five and 16 minutes depending on the newspaper covering the story. Her supporters, many women, broke out in applause after the verdict was read. Leona spoke outside the courthouse. Quote, As I was ever confident of acquittal, the verdict was no great surprise to me. I would have gone to the penitentiary before I would have allowed Talbot to hound me longer. End quote. So is that the end of the Mason-Talbot feud? Oh, no, no, no. During the September trial, Leona Mason sworn out an affidavit that John Talbot was insane, as indicated in the who, who, who's John Talbot flyers that circulated. Now, Leona was charged with perjury, accusing former prosecutor Joseph Talbot of malicious false arrest, but was actually prosecutor W.E. Patti who filed the charges against her, because if you remember, Joseph Talbot isn't the prosecutor anymore. December 10th, 1909, Mrs. Leona Mason brought a countersuit against Joseph Talbot for this malicious prosecution, asking for $10,000 in damages. In her affidavit before the circuit court, Leona Mason claims that the perjury charges were dismissed even before her case came to trial. However, the facts were published widely, quote, injuring her reputation and damaging her nerves. She claims she was so overcome by the charge and because she was held in the city jail for an hour that she was unable to do her own work and was forced to hire help, end quote. So she wants $10,000.
Papers notifying Joseph Talbot were served before he and his family could leave on a vacation to Tampa, Florida, planned so that he could recover from nervous collapse brought on from overwork. This had to be a really terrible time for Joseph and his family, but holy mackerel. I need to point out also that Leona Mason believes that her reputation was ruined, not by her affair with a married man, not running down the street with a gun trying to kill her lover twice. No, no, no. Her reputation was fine then, but accuse her of perjury? That's where Leona drew the line. Just clarifying that for you, because I know it's a lot to absorb. From a lens of time and distance, Leona seems to be histrionic to me, a personality disorder. The three symptoms are one, be uncomfortable unless you're the center of attention. Two, dress provocatively and exhibit inappropriate, seductive, or flirtatious behavior. And three, shifting emotions rapidly. That seems to fit the bill for Leona. Now, Joseph Talbot just couldn't stay out of the news. By the end of 1909, a man named Norman R. Ben filed sensational charges against Joseph E. Talbot for having been, quote, forced into a marriage distasteful to him. A suit to have the marriage annulled was filed with the circuit court yesterday afternoon, end quote. So Norman Denathan charges that he was arrested at work and taken before Judge W.B. Wright. Talbot was there as a substitute prosecuting attorney with an affidavit charging Denathan with a statutory offense. Prosecution believed that Denathan took advantage of a young woman, Goldie Barkman, and now he has to marry her. Talbot threatened to send him in jail unless he did so, and uncertain of what to do, denied his right to speak to an attorney, Denathan told the court that he was innocent. It didn't matter, a guilty plea was entered, and Denathan married Miss Barkman. It was recommended that he pay his wife a few dollars each week and finally give her money to leave the county. Denathan's story. He met Goldie Barkman on the streets two nights before the marriage was forced on him and she threatened to kill him unless he accompanied her home. Denathan did so because he feared not to do so, and because she might become violent. The statutory charges were made against him two days later. Talbot's judgment is really going sideways getting involved in this. First, so Talbot can be a substitute deputy prosecutor, but why would you get involved in this mess of a case after making such a mess of your own professional reputation? So think about it. Rising attorney successfully prosecutes arson murderer Albin Ludwig in this ghastly crime killing Cecilia. Then he faces disbarment, loses re-election as prosecutor. His brother's already shaky reputation is demolished by two attempts on his life by his lover of six years, Leona Mason, who wins at trial. And now Joseph Talbot is forcing a marriage like you have to wonder, has he lost his mind? And I'm not the only one. The name Talbot becomes associated with the word sensational, not for being a successful litigator, however. Struggling, Joseph Talbot falls into despair, which becomes public knowledge after he wandered away from his South Bend home on June 26, 1910, got into a trolley car, went several stops before the conductor kicked him off for not having a ticket. He was described as being in a, quote, deplorable mental condition, end quote, in the Elkhart Daily Review. A few weeks later, on July 6, 1910, 
Joseph Talbot was found in the South Bend home with a revolver and hammer looking for the sergeant of detectives. Okay, that's not good. And he's taken to the hospital for the insane in Detroit with a caring, sensitive headline in the Elkhart Truth, which read, Talbot loses mind. Talbot was being treated for a mental disorder in the hospital at Kenosha, Wisconsin, when he died November 3rd, aged 36 years old. The greatest South Bend scoundrel you've never heard of podcast about John Talbot suggests that Joseph Post got to the point where he couldn't function because of his syphilis, which is incurable at this time. Ooh, syphilis can lead to insanity, so that does have a ring of truth to it. Joseph Talbot is buried in the Cedar Grove Cemetery in South Bend. What a sad, sad outcome. You see why I call this Cecilia's curse. Now, if the story hasn't been surprising enough, here is the twist. Yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet. Leona Mason, who got off on attempting to murder John Talbot, remarried her former husband, Edward Mason. Big surprise on us, but this was even more shocking to Edward Mason's fiance of the time, Miss Lena A. Jocelyn. Quote, a young Mishawaka woman of striking beauty, end quote, who claimed that Edward Mason was engaged to her. Ooh. So, two weeks after Mr. Talbot's death, Jocelyn files a $25,000 breach of promise suit against Mason for her broken heart. Now, today, that is about $730,000 or 650,000 euros. Fun fact, breach of promise to marry suits was much more common in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but is not gone completely. About one half of American states in 2021 permitted a suit for breach of promise to marry. Now, historically, most of the plaintiffs have been female. However, virtually all states that allow such actions allow suits to be brought by either sex. Having a proof of a written contract, say a deposit you lost booking a catering hall for the wedding, helps prove the case. Only California, Connecticut, Florida, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania prohibit the legality of such suits entirely, but they still allow an injured party to recover funds, chattel or personal property or real estate. Many of these suits involve the engagement ring, but much of this relies on where you reside and none of this is legal advice, so consult your own lawyer. This gets worse, believe it or not, when Miss Jocelyn amends her charges in September 1911, adding seduction to the charges plus the illness caused by the premature birth of a child and subsequent humiliation and anguish over her tarnished reputation. Oh my. And this gets more complicated. Mr. Edward Mason was certainly in the doghouse for sure. The dinners must have been mind-blowing. Mrs. Mason and the murder charges filed against her, trying to murder her lover. Mr. Mason seducing, proposing, and dumping pregnant fiancé. And we think society's gone to hell in a handbasket today? No, people just don't change. They really don't. Now, one more tidbit before I wrap up. If you recall, murderer William Eugene Cook was brought to justice at the same time in South Bend as Alvin Ludwig, the other murder case that occurred at the time of Cecilia's death. Gary Sisnecki mentions this, but didn't get into the specifics, so I just had to look into it because I was curious. 
Who is William Eugene Cook and what murder did he commit? Okay, here's a story you're not going to hear anyplace else, I assure you. In jail for stealing a bicycle, William Eugene Cook is sentenced to one to three years in prison at Jeffersonville Reformatory, run by Superintendent William H. Whitaker, same place Alvin is in jail, when a guilty conscience got to Cook. A year into his sentence and about to be paroled, Cook confessed first to the prison chaplain and then to the superintendent himself that he had murdered a man. So what brought William Cook to commit murder? Why did he confess? Had prison actually reformed him? Well, let's find out. William Eugene Cook was born in Nyack Falls, Canada on March 25, 1878 to Marcine and Gertrude Cook. A farmer, William was one of three boys with three sisters rounding out the Cook family. When he was young, his mother Gertrude separated from his father, who was a rather notorious alcoholic. When William was 13, he got arrested for throwing stones at a railroad train and being a nuisance. In 1893, 15-year-old William stole cigars from a cigar store and ran off to the World's Fair. Geez, imagine if he had run into serial killer H.A. Holmes while he was in Chicago at the World Fair. The what-ifs of history, they are so much fun. So, William makes his way west to stay with his aunt, Mrs. Ella Skinner, in Nebraska. And there, he steals some cattle, and he winds up in jail for the next two and a half years. Well, on his way to being a habitual criminal, William Cook makes his way back to Cleveland, determined to turn over a new leaf and live life as a good man. But William got to drinking and wound up in jail there too. And this pattern is going to repeat itself until 1898 when he enlists to serve in the Spanish-American War, serving with the 5th Cav, and he is sent to Tampa, Florida. Very short time, he is taken with fever and was sent to Atlanta, Georgia to recover. Recovered, he tried to get his discharge from the army, and failing that, William deserted, because making bad choices is what William does. Back in Cleveland, William is arrested for desertion, I mean, who saw that coming? And he's sent to Columbus, Ohio, where he escaped from the guardhouse, eluding the officers. This time, William goes to Michigan and resumes robbing houses for a living. He did attempt to get actual jobs, but he drank so much he just didn't last. Not one to give up, William wound up working at the Windsor Coal Company, and he had been working there for a brief stay when he was asked to go collect some money for the company. Gee, what could go wrong? Let's let the fox guard the hen house, why don't you? So William Cook did exactly as instructed. He went and collected the money and then went off to spend it too. And caught, there's no question of what transpired. The authorities sent him to the workhouse for embezzlement for three months. After this, because it had gone so well the first time, William decides to enlist in the army again. This time it's May 1899, and he's going to be with the 4th Cav, and they start out for the Philippines, which is at the end of the Spanish-American War. The Philippines would become American protectorate, so a colony without calling it a colony. Dang, if Cook didn't make it all the way to San Francisco, where they were arresting deserters. Afraid of being arrested, he ran off deserting again. From San Francisco, he went to Idaho, to Wyoming, 
Colorado, holding up people and robbing them along the way. June 1899, somewhere riding a grain train from Nebraska and Colorado, Cook was in a train wreck that badly injured him. In an interview with the South Bend Tribune, William explained that the railroad company paid his board and doctor's bills while he was in the hospital in North Platte, Nebraska. Once recovered, he returned to robbery and holdups, but he decided to be a good man again and he broke ties with all of his criminal associates. He took a job herding cattle, which was great, until he began to steal them and sell them. Oh my God, what a slow murder. In 1901, after being shot and wounded robbing places in Canada, William wound up in Elkhart, Indiana, working for Jake Keasley's Brickyard, earning $4 a week plus board. He did not drink, and he did not steal for two months. There, he met Rosie Hall of St. Joseph's County, daughter of Alexander Hall, and they married on August 31, 1901. Rosie and William lived in Elkhart, where William went to work for a coal dealer. He worked there for a few months, quit, and this pattern would keep repeating itself. Eventually, they moved in with Rosie's family, and as you might guess, their married life was stormy, at least according to the accounts I found in the South Bend Tribune. William told the reporter, quote, I did not provide for my family, and in fact, I was drunk about all the time. In March 1903, I told my wife I was going to Cleveland, and she went to her folks, but I didn't go to Cleveland. I came back to the house after she'd gone, sold all the furniture, took all the money, and went out and got drunk, end quote. Rosie takes him back, however, and they resume living together from July 1903 to July 1904. And William states, quote, I did provide for her and my children. I didn't steal or rob anybody during that whole year, end quote. I'm sure that Rosie was praying that he'd gotten himself together here, but it was not to be. By late August 1904, he's gone off to Benton Harbor, Michigan, where he was working in a livery stable, and he and an Englishman would steal stuff from the commission house and sell it. Not long after, he headed for Granger, Indiana, staying with his wife's folks once more, where he stole the bicycles, which I started the story with. Uh, with his brother-in-law helping him, leading to their arrest. Since Rosie's brother was a kid and scared to death, he confessed to the police everything and they let him go. William, who'd clearly been the mastermind of his dastardly plan to steal bicycles, wound up in the county jail again. Now, we're getting to the events that lead to the murder, when William Eugene Cook is about 27 years old. When he got out of jail this time, William returned to his in-laws, the Hall Homestead, taking a job with a Mr. Lowry in a mercantile business. It seems that Rosie's family were struggling at this time, so William promised he'd bring them some money. I'd have been a nervous wreck at this point if he says this to me, because this guy makes trouble. Poor Rosie. Set out to help the family, William went to the grocery store to buy some bullets for his revolver because that's definitely going to help, and he thought he bought about 10 bullets. The next day, he told the fam that he was going to work at Lowry's, and on the way, he had to pass by a hut or a shanty where an aged lumberjack, John R. Perkins, lived just south of Granger. William's brother-in-law had asked him to cut wood for Mr. Perkins, 
who really wasn't able to do it for himself anymore. So William goes over to do that. The next day, William heard rumors that John Perkins was sick in bed. With his revolver in his pocket, William peers through the windows and sees Perkins lying in his bed. He taps on the window, Perkins raises up, and William shot Perkins through the window. He'd learned that Perkins had some cash because the gossip in the area told of Perkins buying a new suit of clothes the week before for about $30, which is a lot of money. Entering, William stole about $35, which is over $1,000 and 965 euros. Cook left the $10 in silver in John's pocket to throw off any suspicion and make people believe that Perkins had committed suicide. Cook claimed, quote, I did not go to Perkins' house with the express idea of killing him, but when I got there, I just thought, what an easy way to get some money. After I killed Perkins, I didn't know what to do with the body, so I set the house on fire, end quote. And then Cook went off to work. Passing through Granger later on, he heard the report that Perkins' house had burnt down with him in it. Cook claims this kind of made him sick, but he says he didn't know what to do. Back at the halls with Rosie, he made up his mind that the best thing he could do was run. Okay, his usual MO. He went to South Bend, blew the money he had, and went to work for Logger and Hubbard and Logman riding their coal wagon. He lasted five days because this was just too much like work to him. Back in Elkhart with the in-laws again, he took a job working for a saloon keeper, Ike O'Donnell. Another short-lived job, he went back to Granger and was shocked to hear that a man who brought bullets in the store was suspected of killing Mr. Perkins. Well, that was a major inconvenience. Feeling uncomfortable, you think, William returned once again to his wife and family and was greeted by an argumentative mother-in-law, likely long overdue in her mind. William and Rosie left, where he got another job, got drunk, which is what he does. On Saturday, he gave Rosie money to buy shoes. On Tuesday, he stole the money out of Rosie's pocketbook, drinking it away. Rosie cursed at him, totally exasperated at this point. This devolved into a physical altercation with him hitting Rosie. Rosie's sister arrived and she had him arrested for being drunk and he was fined a dollar. So wait, William isn't, <laughs> William isn't arrested for hitting Rosie, but for being drunk. Noted. But before William could return home, Rosie, her brother and sister told the police what they knew about the earlier bike thefts and William was arrested on these charges and sent to the Jeffersonville Reformatory, which is how he came to be serving time when he felt compelled to confess to the murder of Perkins. William tells the South Bend Tribune, quote, I didn't feel at all badly about killing Mr. Perkins until I came to the Reformatory, but it just seemed that I must share my awful secret with someone. In making this confession without any solicitation of my free will, I wanted to get it off my mind, end quote. So, do you think he's repenting murder bookies? Is his conscience truly disturbing him? That maybe he's turned a corner, finally owing up to what he's done? His previous attempts to go straight and take care of his family had failed? Was this a new opportunity or another botched effort with him reverting to form 
continuing as a liar, criminal, and low-life murderer. Well, let's see how this plays out. William Eugene Cook told the Reformatory Chaplain, Reverend W.E. Edgins, the whole story of how he came to murder John R. Perkins. After repeating his confession to Superintendent Whitaker, Governor Hanley was notified. Hanley, in turn, directed Cook to be detained until an investigation could be conducted. It was perplexing because while in prison, Cook had been a good prisoner with an exemplary record, and that's why he was up for parole. They investigated and they found evidence that Cook was in Granger the day of the fire and death of Perkins and was seen near the hut about the time of the fire and had not been to work at Lowry's that morning at all. All circumstantial, but still evidence. And what does William Cook do? He retracts his confession in early December 1906 when he pleads not guilty to the murder charges. The South Bend Tribune reported that William admittedly told Superintendent Whitaker all about his criminal history, but now he is stoutly denying confessing to the crime of killing the Granger Hermit. Okay, William Eugene Cook is found guilty by a jury of his peers and sentenced to life in prison. And you'd think that was that, but nope. December 6, 1906, a headline from the Muncie Evening Post read, quote, Arch fiend plunges knife into body, cook alive, although he cannot live, end quote. William tried to commit suicide, paralleling Albin Ludwig's case even more closely now. He plunged a jackknife into his chest above the heart, but not deep enough to do the deed. And when discovered, he tried to press the blade even deeper. So despite the headline, William does recover, and where he got the knife, no one was actually able to figure out. If you remember, in addition to Alvin Ludwig and William Eugene Cook, Gary Sosnecki tells us about the murderer, Day Armstrong, who had also tried to commit suicide after he was arrested. So I find it curious that all three killers all attempted suicide, who were all in the same area, the same year, committing murders just struck me as quite coincidental. And I'm stopping there. Okay, enough. This concludes second cast, Cecilia's Curse, The Potato Masher Murders, Death at the Hand of a Jealous Husband. Remember, I could not possibly get into all the details, though I do try to give you a real sense of the story Gary Sisnecki tells. Read the book. You will not be sorry, murder bookies. It was such a different story from previous trilogies, a single domestic explosion of violence resulting in a terrible, awful murder that unleashed a cascade of subsequent events with all of these families reeling. And while there are many examples, this one was unique as well, as it snuffed out the life of this woman, mother of two, with much to live for and much to do as a modern woman of that bygone era. It's a sad case, and it seems to really have impacted all of those involved leaving a trail of melancholy behind, touching upon the remaining family members, lawyers, their loved ones, one has to wonder if a curse did come down upon them. Unlikely, but terrible deaths do have unforeseen consequences that we delve into here. Thank you, Gary Sisnecki. This has been a fascinating journey with you. My bonus episode 33 interview with Gary is coming out too. 
If you know anyone who is in danger from a domestic violence situation, please get help and please be smart. Cecilia was killed the day she was leaving, and statistics tell us this is a volatile and dangerous time for anyone getting out of these situations. There are resources on my blog. Please get help. Please be safe. Love does not hurt. Trust your gut always. And my choice for our next book is The Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. The Bike Path Killer terrorized Buffalo, New York for over 14 years, mercilessly raping and killing his prey, and then eluding law enforcement at every turn. And then he seemed to vanish. Was he done? Locked up? Dead? Read along with me and cuddle up because this is a page turner that left me so uneasy. Oh my God, what a story. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. Yep, I'm now on Buy Me a Coffee, Murder Shelf, BKCB site. The link is on my blog. Both will really help me grow the podcast and reach new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I love hearing from you. Follow or subscribe to my show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. Let it pop right into your feed. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading, trust your gut, source material, and snack and drink information for the Potato Masher Trilogy is found on my blog, too. Really plug on my blog this episode. Check it out. Stay safe. Happy New Year 2022. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved.